We're analyzing innovation adaptations with master surgeons around the world. Today's episode focuses on TMJ, moderated by Dr. Rafael Granizo, featuring Dr. Frank Dolwick and Dr. Andrew Sidebottom. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the session. So, hello everybody. Welcome to this podcast series coming from the International Association of Maxillofacial Surgery. Well, thank you to this International Association for this fresh new series and and, um, and the format that we have. Um, so it's my honor to present uh, this temporal maneuver joint surgery um, day. And this is Rafael Martin Granizo uh, from Madrid, Spain. I'm oral maxillofacial surgeon as well. I am um, a great fan of temporal mandibular joint, mostly focused uh, since all my, my working life in uh, arthroscopy of the temporal mandibular joint. I am a member of the European Association for Cranial Maxillofacial Surgery as, as well as fellow. And also I am a member of the Spanish Association as well. So it's my honor today to introduce two great masters of uh, the temporal mandibular joint. Uh, they are coming uh, for um, different from different continents. First one is coming from America, the other one from Europe, and also from the States and from United Kingdom. So it's my pleasure to introduce both. Uh, first of all, as the most veteran one is Dr. Frank Dolwich. He is really uh, well known uh, for everybody because he has been working for a long since a long time in this topic, and um, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, you look great, by the way. And let me say something about you, very brief, because you have such a, a long curriculum that is impossible to resume in a few minutes. So uh, you are professor of uh, maxillofacial surgery in the University of Florida, former department chairman, uh, also of course fellow of the American Board of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery and of the American and International Association for Oral Maxillofacial Surgery. But mostly you have been working since a long time with many papers, many books, and many courses and symposia uh, in this topic. So welcome, Frank, and uh, thank you for joining us. And the second, one, the second one is um, Professor Andrew Saibotton. Andrew Saibotton is also a very good friend of mine. He comes from the United Kingdom. He's a leading consultant on oral maxillofacial surgery. Uh, I'm working right now with the MII the Park Hospital and the Lincoln Hospital, as well as the Spire Nottingham Hospital in Nottingham, United Kingdom. Uh, he has done over 300 alloplastic joint replacement. He's also honorary assistant professor at the University of Nottingham. And uh, also he has been consultant in this specialty at Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham. Uh, he did a fellowship in dental surgery and in oral maxillofacial surgery in Liverpool some years ago. And uh, right now, author of the United Kingdom National Guidelines for Temporal Mandibular Joint Replacement. He is also associate editor 
uh, of this area in the British Journal of Maxillofacial Surgery, as well as um, reviewer in the European Journal of Training Maxillofacial Surgery and also the International uh, Journal of Maxillofacial Surgery. So welcome both. Um, I'm happy to, to start this uh, podcast about this interesting topic. Um, probably, uh, let's let's focus if you if you think that, that is correct, uh, because we are surgeons. That's uh, obvious. So let's go directly for the treatment and directly for the different options for treating this temporary mandibular joint diseases. So. Um, initially, what are what do you think is the the origin of this um, pathology? Um, mostly the temporal manual joint dysfunction and the problem with the disc inside the joint, which uh, which is the origin uh, of it? Is it there's malocclusion, habits, uh, overloading, or some rheumatologic factor? What do you think? Uh, we start initially for for Frank, please. <clears throat> well, obviously, as Rob and Andrew, you both know this is a really controversial topic. I think not as controversial today as it was when I first started in the field. Back in the early 70s, when I first started in TMJ, of course, everybody was talking occlusion, occlusion, occlusion. And I think most people today recognize that the occlusion while in some cases may be a factor in general, is not the primary uh, cause of TMJ uh, dysfunction, pain and dysfunction problems. And for me personally, I think it, it's two main areas. Uh, macro trauma is clearly a cause of significant TMJ uh, injury and, and, and issues. And then for me, the chronic issues, you got to ask yourself, why do all of these young people get so many joint problems? And, and I think that for me, the common thing is muscle hyperactivity. I think that the, you know, the overloading of the joint, the putting the joint under stress from uh, bruxism, from clenching is uh, got to be a, a really a, a main etiologic factor. And as we know, uh, Doreen Nitsen has written extensively uh, on the subject on how you know, overloading of the joint clenching can cause these uh, hypoxia reperfusion injuries and so forth. And won't go into that, but I'll, I'll give that as my answer and, and let Andrew comment and be interested in hearing what he thinks. Yeah, I think it, it's pretty similar. You've got, uh, I, I try to put it in simplistic terms for my patients because we're now required to write to our patients with copies to the GPs rather than the other way around. And so I think compression of the joint, um, you effectively what you do is you, if you compress something often enough, it squeezes it flatter, and that squeezing flatter, the disc goes flatter, the retrodiscal tissues stretch, and either the disc slips forward out of position or you get a kind of compressive extrusion of the fluid, which, as, as Dorit says, is, is an anchored disc um, where the, the tissues are sticking together because there's not enough lubrication. That clearly is, as Frank says, from uh, repetitive micro trauma of the compression. And then you can get these acute injuries from a direct injury to the joint. TMJ whiplash is one of those controversial issues 
whether that's due to an acute muscle spasm causing an acute uh, compression of the joint or whether there's direct macrotrauma onto the tissues of the joint. But all of those are contributory factors. And as, as Rafa says as well, um, we've got to consider the inflammatory arthropathies as contributing towards all of this because a number of particularly young females may have an underlying rheumatoid or other inflammatory arthropathy, which is contributing. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I completely agree with you. So we can say that uh, maybe a multifactorial uh, etiology in this in this uh, in this joint, uh, mostly based on um, overloading and uh, mostly related with this increased number of young people, as you in fact told, uh, that uh, young people is uh, getting even younger people, probably due to the uh, greater stress. And uh, this maybe relate to a biochemical problem inside the joint that starts uh, giving some problem with the, with the disc. So, so we have right now, um, of course, that uh, we have a multifactorial um, origin and etiology, as uh, of course we must treat this disease in, in the same way. So we, we need we need diet, we need uh, exercises, we need uh, of course splints, we need physiotherapy, and so many things. It's amazing what you told you that that is uh, why is trade so different in gender as um, probably the number of um, uh, women uh, is 90% higher than men. So probably there are some hormonal changes and hormonal diseases or disturbances that probably in the future we might study uh, deeply. So once we have uh, the origin, I would like to move to the different treatment options and we start by the most uh, or less invasive ways that we have to, to deal with this problem. So I know that you, especially Frank, has been one of the experts in describing uh, that beautiful paper with Doris Nixon and uh, Alex, Alex Martinez Garza, the arthrosis first time which was published in 1989, I think, 1989. And it was, that was a superb, um, a paper that opened a new a new new world for the treatment and management of these uh, diseases inside the young. So uh, right now, in the minimal invasive surgery concerning arthrotic disease and uh, also arthroscopy and infiltration, what especially Frank have you seen that has changed since then? Since this. Uh, 20, 25 years ago. From then, what we have right now uh, available for the patient. Well, I, I think the the biggest changes from say 20, 25 years ago has been that I think we've become more conservative. Certainly, back in the 80s, there was a you know we did way too many open joint surgeries that many of which were not successful, and we used those bad alloplastic implants, proplast Teflon was really bad. Silicone was not so bad, and but uh, even silicone caused some foreign body reaction. And so we've, we've become 
On one hand, we've become more conservative, but maybe we're doing more invasive procedures, but the procedures are more um, minimally invasive. And certainly for me, you know, we we started arthrocentesis, as you mentioned, Dorit and Alex and I, uh, mainly Dorit and I started, and then Alex was a fellow a year after Dorit, and arthroscopy had just started. You know, we had done some arthroscopic lysis and lavage, and people like Joe McCain and and uh, uh, Bruce Sanders in this country and other people around the world were doing arthroscopy. And we raised the question, what is it about arthroscopic lavage and lysis that works? What if we just put two needles in the joint and irrigated the joint and distended the joint? Would that work also? And lo and behold, it, it worked really well. I had done hundreds of, arthros of arth arthrograms prior to that time. So it was easy for me to do arthrocentesis. And I still today think as a frontline treatment for many of the intraarticular conditions, arthrocentesis is a simple procedure that gives us the maximum benefit at the least cost and least harm to the patient of the early things we can do. So for me, for most conditions, uh, you know, we're talking about pain dysfunction conditions, arthrocentesis will be my first procedure because, uh, you know, we get so much bang for the buck with such a low uh, morbidity associated with it. Yeah, I think, yeah I, think, I think we need to take a stepwise approach to management of TMD. So the first stage is to really exclude those with mainly myofascial symptoms. Uh, probably 90% of the patients we get have primary myofascial disease and they don't warrant surgical intervention. We then look at an initial conservative phase of management, rest, splints, physiotherapy, etc. And when that's failed over a period of time, then we should look at more invasive procedures. Now, what has happened in the last few years is the controversy has moved towards how long should that period of conservative management be? In, in some fields, they're saying six months to a year. What we're seeing increasingly is if you intervene with an arthrocentesis early, then you will get better long-term outcomes. If you delay beyond a year, and these are studies that have come out 2012 with Israel, 2015, um, Voss, and Slater, early arthrocentesis gives better long-term outcomes than delay. In those cases where there are arthro arthrographic or um, arthrogenous pain and problems. How do you define whether it's arthrogenous? A simple way of doing that is to put some local anesthetic into the joint and see how much of the pain and function it relieves. And that, of, of course, is to some people what they would say is an arthrocentesis. A true arthrocentesis involves putting fluid in sufficient quantity through the joint at a sufficient pressure so that you can distend the joint, you get the breakdown of microadhesions, and it, uh, it gets rid of the inflammatory mediators. So by and large, the work of, of Dorit Nitsan has suggested that we need a pressure of around 150 millimeters of mercury. More than that, you're more likely to get capsular rupture. You still can with that pressure and at least 200 mils of fluid going through the joint. The next controversy is, should we put something in after that? Should we put in hyaluronic acid, PRP, 
or anything else. And a number of studies have shown no huge benefit to adding something in over and above simple arthrocentesis, whereas there are a few studies, which are case control studies, which suggest that maybe HA, maybe PRP is useful in addition. But it's the, the jury's still out on those. And the orthopedic literature would suggest there is no real role for additional substances over and above an arthroscopy in the knee. Yeah, I, I would a little bit disagree with you there, Andrew, because we just two years ago completed the randomized prospective double-blinded study looking at steroids. And there was a clear benefit of using this steroid during the arthrocentesis. And I think what where the confusion comes is the way it's been evaluated. We found there was no difference in the use of steroid or non-steroid on pain at rest. And so if you just ask the patient about pain at rest, there is no difference. But when we evaluated pain during function, there was a significant difference at a P of 0.001 difference at more, uh, more uh, less pain at rest uh, during function when steroids were used. And the range of motion was better when steroids were used and when steroids weren't used. So I would, I, I would, uh, Doreen and I have discussed that a lot. And, uh, and I know there's that difference of opinion, but our, our study clearly showed, and it was a, a very good randomized prospective double-blinded study where neither the patient nor the person doing the evaluation knew what the patient had received. And there was a clear benefit oh. from the steroids. So in this case, uh, I see that uh, both of you think that in, in those selected cases, uh, approaching this is maybe the first choice for minimally invasive approach. And then we can move to something bigger like uh, arthroscopy in case that we have, uh, or we need a good diagnosis and to target uh, and treat some specific diseases inside the joint. Uh, one of the things amazing thing that you raised that topic, Andrew, was the, the substance that we can um, place inside the joint after any procedure. I personally agree with you because I think, uh, although it's not scientifically well demonstrated, orthopedic surgeons already do in many of the joints. And in my hands, uh, I use it nearly most of the times. In this case, PRP, because we have uh, something like oil inside the joint, something lubricant that is not the crucial part of the treatment, but it helps the, the own joint to repair itself. So it's, it's something that's a help that you give the, the joint to be restored, as well as the hyaluronic acid. But uh, of course, there are some new substances, for example, ozonotherapy, all in the future, maybe interesting to use uh, even ambulatory or outpatient basis, not in surgery, and maybe we must um, must uh, do further studies in that, as well as the regenerative medicine, for, of course, maybe the future stem cells and so on. So let's move to the I next. I think these are these yeah. are all areas of yeah. interest, but there's no strong scientific evidence to support their yeah. use as yet. So we need a lot more randomized control studies comparing the use of PRP or nothing, the use of HA or nothing. And at the moment, the jury is very much out. 
Yeah, we're, we're currently we trying to we're currently trying to repeat our steroid study using PRGF, and uh, it's it's very early. These these studies take an amazingly long time when you do these randomized studies because they get the patients who will agree to participate, who meet the criteria, and then do all the follow-up. Yeah. Takes forever, but we we currently have the the study going on using PRGF, which is plasma rich in growth factors, and we're using that on the patients with degenerative arthritis. And so that study not only has all of the pain evaluation things, but are also doing the cone beam CT pre-treatment and six months later to see if there is any difference in the architecture of the joint. And of course, there are so many questions with that. Is one injection, two injections, three injections. Yeah. It's much more complex than the steroid yeah. study because you're not only looking at pain reduction, but you're looking at is there a change in the in the structure of the joint following that kind of treatment. Uh, actually, actually, I was moving to the next topic that it was a proscopy of the temporal maneuver joint. It is a field that I love more. And <laughs> uh, really, I'm, I'm working since a long time ago in that topic because it's something quite easy for the homo sapiens see, we directly see the image, what is happening in uh, inside the joint. And uh, my, my, uh, my willings in this, in this topic in after arthroscopy is that when you place something inside the joint, you avoid to, um, that, that, that space will be completely full of clots, for example, that is common in a minimally invasive surgery, you produce some bleeding inside the joint. Of course, not voluntary, but you can produce some bleeding with some clots. And clots usually are very sticky, very difficult to remove by the, the joint itself. It happens everywhere. It's like a martrosis in the joint of the, of the knee or the hip. So sometimes you have to remove them, or even you must put some substance inside the joint to avoid this kind of clots inside. So the next topic would be the arthroscopy. What do you think of this technique? And, uh, you know, I know that it's really a controversial topic if the disc should be repositioned and fixed or not. I know, Frank, that you published in the journal, American Journal some years ago, a controversy um, uh, if the, if the, whether the, the disc should be in place or is not so relevant for the disease. So what is your, your opinion about arthroscopy right now? Because the interest is very high, mostly in, in level two or level three arthroscopy, operative arthroscopy. Frank. Yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, it depends. You know, there's a lot of discussion about the, the you know, the oral surgery median in the United States, we had a, program on whether arthroscopy was better than arthrocentesis. And of course, the answer to that was it depends. And clearly, when you look at arthroscopic lavage and lysis versus arthrocentesis, and that's really the only thing arthrocentesis should be compared to, probably shouldn't be compared to surgical arthroscopy. And uh, the difference there is maybe arthroscopy is a little bit better, but in terms of, uh, you know, all of those other factors, the expense, the special equipment, the increased training, all those things, it's, it's, it's debatable. Now, the issue, of course, is what is the role of, 
uh, disc repositioning arthroscopically. And I think there probably is a role for that. And uh, I think if you're going to do disc repositioning surgery, mostly the only way it should be done would be arthroscopically. Occasionally, we will do a, a, a disc repositioning open surgery, but I do that very seldom now. For me, the role is going to be arthrocentesis, arthroscopic lysis and lavage, because I don't have any experience doing surgical arthroscopy. Then maybe discectomy or total joint. I don't do a lot of arthroplasty, but there may be a, a, a valuable role for arthroscopic, early, early arthroscopic disc repositioning. Of course, the whole question is, how important is it to have a normal disc reposition? That's the really bottom line question to me, and I'm not, I'm not so sure. And the reason I think that way is because the treatments were worse than the disease, I thought. I came to the conclusion that most open surgeries repositioning the disc was worse than the problem. And that's why I kind of abandoned it. Now, maybe arthroscopically, when I see you really talented arthroscopists do that, maybe there is a, a place for that. I'll be interested in hearing what Andrew has to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the... I similarly um, lysis and lavage with arthroscopy. I think the first thing to say is that it is hugely better at diagnosis than an MRI. And there doesn't seem to be any correlation between findings in MRI and outcome following arthroscopy. So that's the first thing to say is that whilst MRI is touted as a way of diagnosing along with arthrocentesis, it isn't better and in fact is significantly worse than arthroscopy at diagnosis. What you can get with most, even with three Tesla machines, is at best about a 50% chance of getting it right, diagnosing a disc tear. So you've got to be a little bit careful with, with using just arthrocentesis as MRI as your way ahead. Level one arthroscopy is a good diagnostic tool. It gives therapeutic benefit in the Best hands in the world between about 80 to 90% of patients get better following level one arthroscopy. That then says, okay, how are we going to get 10 to 15% of patients in that group that are going to get better using level two or level three? And a randomized study to show a difference between level one and level two stroke three would take around about 200 patients in each group to show a 10% difference. So it's going to be very difficult to prove that level two or level three is better. Talking about displication, we saw through the 70s and 80s and 90s, all these papers where patients had displication. They then got another painful click four or five years later, they had another displication and they got this procedure over and over and over again. And by the end of that, they had a degenerate joint. So as Frank says, you've got to be aware that the treatment may cause worse outcome than the actual disease itself. So I think open displication shouldn't, I don't do it. I wouldn't do it routinely and I wouldn't advise it. Arthroscopic displication, again, I think the jury is out. I think the next thing we're moving on to is open surgery, which I'm sure Rafa will move towards. So I, I can't do level two and three. 
I haven't trained to do level two and three. And the time that it would take to do a level two, three of maybe an hour to two hours compared to a 15-minute level one arthroscopy, lysis and lavage in the National Health Service is not justified. So they would justify me doing six patients in a session as opposed to one or maybe two patients in a session. So it's it's all a balance at the moment. And those who are enthusiastic about level two, level three will maintain their enthusiasm. But what I want to see is randomized controlled studies where patients are randomized to having level three displication compared to those that are at, that don't have it. You then get exponents like Chi Yang, who absolutely blows your mind when you listen to him with the way that he can do a disc repositioning in 15 minutes and get regrowth of the condylar head. And, and that just blows my mind. And if he can do it, there shouldn't be any reason why other people can't do that. But we're not seeing those studies because, quite frankly, the numbers they get through in China are far greater than those we could possibly achieve in Europe and America. Uh, I'm, I'm completely agree with you in many things, but I was amazing, Andrew. One of your latest um, papers you published, in, I think in the British some years ago, it was like a kind of philosophy of arthroscopy. It was, um, you know, supporting, in this case, Lysis and Lavage arthroscopy. And it was amazing for me because I know that you you like a lot and you manage a lot uh, temporal maneuver joint replacement. So, uh, and you say something like, uh, there are some kind uh, of um, macroscopic changes that is, are impossible to see without arthroscopy. That is that is the first the first thing. Once you are inside, you see the target. You see what is going on there and what is wrong. And you can even right now in the advancement that we have all these years with the new equipments and new technologies, the new better better images and instruments. You can tr treat them directly exactly. There is an orifice that. Uh, chondromalacy, that um, adhesion, uh, even repositioning the disc, of course. So that is amazing. So that I think any of the techniques have their own room with good indications in this amazing joint. This uh, this is one of the other topics. So let's move if you if you if you want to the next topic that should be the open surgery. Open surgery for, of course, those all pathology conditions that you have directly to open it, for example, the tumors and the uh, condylar resorptions and uh, fractures and so many, and the generative also diseases. Maybe these are the most difficult to treat and to manage. And uh, I know you both are really expert. Um, I know that uh, Frank uh, work a lot in investigation. Also, I love a paper that you published some, your department some, some years ago in goats, there was some histological analysis of the disc and how you found so many histological changes in the in the in the lower face of the disc, not in the upper. And we really deal with the low, uh, not with the low, but the, with the with the superior face of the disc. So it's interesting how the generative 
um, diseases lead to these catastrophic joints that uh, should be replaced. So my question is for both, what is your open approach before replacement? Yeah, I, I've almost got to the orthopedic approach. I don't think orthopedic surgeons do many intra-articular arthroplasties. When they're talking about arthroscopy, they're talking about ligament repairs and things like that. And, and I've gone almost to the point of arthrocentesis, arthroscopy, total joint replacement, if there's significant degenerative joint changes. I will, as an intermediate step, for some, particularly some younger patients, consider discectomy and discectomy with a fat graft. I don't know whether the fat does anything or, or, or not. I feel like replacing that dead space with fat is better than a big blood clot. Um, and I tell most of the patients so that I do discectomy, probably 50, about 40 to 50% of those patients will ultimately go to total joint replacement. And uh, uh, for me, if a patient's got significant degenerative joint disease with pain and particularly pain and change in occlusion, we're going to go to total joint replacement because the total joints we have available today are, are really good. The, the, what's the striker joint, the new Biomet custom joint, the Biomet stock joint, those joints, I think, have proven over time that they, they work. You have minimal uh, complications with them in terms of the mechanics of the joint. The complications are mostly related to, uh, uh, you know, surgical complications like facial nerve injury and, and so forth. And um, so I, I don't do many open joint surgeries today that aren't total joint replacement. I'll do an occasional discectomy and with a fat graft. And other than that, I don't, I, I would go, go to total joint replacement. Okay. I, thanks, Frank. I think um, <clears throat> I'm still on this stepwise ladder. So I'll use my arthroscopy if it isn't beneficial, which in my hands, about 85% patients get better following a lysis and lavage. If diagnostically I've found damage in the joint, then I will try to address that. Now, if you've got a CT scan that shows a grossly degenerate joint, you're not going to be able to address that with open surgery. But there is this intermediate number of patients who have a disc tear, or minor changes or lipping of the uh, eminence or an enlarged eminence where you can functionally improve the joint by opening it up and seeing what the pathology is and treating that pathology. So if there is a disc tear and it can't be pulled off the articular surface, so if there's a disc tear and it can be pulled off the articular surface, then I'll placate it off the articular surface. If the disc is irreparably damaged, or stuck and kind of formed in a ball at the front of the joint, and you can't mobilize it at all, I will take the whole disc out. I don't think there's any role for a partial discectomy. You do a full discectomy, and that's not a straightforward procedure. You're going to get bleeding from the medial tissues. You're going to get bleeding anteriorly, but it is a good procedure. But in addition, if the condylar head is damaged, if the eminence is damaged, you smooth those areas macroscopically and we all know that down a microscope it'll still look like the himalayas but macroscopically you you flatten off the joint surfaces you allow it to function 
And the key to all TMJ surgery is post-operative function mobilization, day one. Get them moving, get them moving. I don't put an interposition in. I, I've just written a, a paper from the uh, for the maxillofacial clinics on looking at interposition or no interposition following discectomy. The, the, the evidence supports no interposition. But the reason for putting an inter interposition is to give the patient better pain-free movement early on. If you don't put an interposition in, you've got two bone surfaces rubbing together. It's painful for several months. But if they move it despite that, they will form a fibrous neodisc and long-term outcomes looking at that. So you know, I've, I've done around about 120 patients using that approach now. 78% of them are four or five years down the line, pain-free, still functioning. You look at the studies from Holmland, and albeit his cases were nothing to discectomy, those patients still at 20 years down the line are functioning well in 85% of cases. So discectomy is a good procedure, but if you take an X-ray of the joint or a CT scan, it will look a mess. But we need to realize we're not treating X-rays, we're not treating CT scans, we're treating patients. And if they have an opening of 30 or more millimeters, a pain score of two out of 10 or less on a VAS, you're not going to guarantee that you're going to get improvement using an alloplastic replacement. And therefore, as an intermediate stage, with the joint that's got not significant damage, then I would do an open arthroplasty. Oh, thank you. I yeah, well, we are... well said. I would agree with agree with uh, Andrea. You guys from uh, the UK have such a wonderful way of speaking and using words. <laughs> I, I admire your ability to communicate very well, and I would I would agree with that. Uh, you know, always when we look at outcomes that different people get, it really depends on your criteria, who you operate on, as much as what you do, and. Uh, uh, I've, you know, most of my patients that go to total joint are going to have ch significant change in occlusion as well, not just degenerative changes, but change in occlusion. And I think that um, the, the fat is so simple to do. And again, is the, is the fat better or not? I don't know. I just think that they get a little bit better range of motion and, and uh, uh, complain of less pain. But a small fat graft is so simple to do. It, yeah. It's yeah. the only reason we do it. But, uh, you know, we do have to remember for all of these things. And, you know, I was a great admirer of Professor Boring from Grunigan. And that group have clearly shown, you know, the patients get better over time. Most of them will get better if you give them enough time. And my plea always is that if the, when I see a patient at the end of five years, I don't want them to be worse off because I did something to them than they would have been had I done nothing other than conservative treatment with splints and diet and stuff. And I, I think okay, the other thing, Frank, I think the other thing, Frank, is that the, the, the philosophy in America is very different to the UK. Mm -hmm. So you as a specialist TMJ surgeon will see patients that have had three, four, five procedures done elsewhere before they come to you. And, right. and those multiply operated joints, yeah. alloplastic mm -hmm. replacement, you, you're yeah. not going to operate again on them because they're mutilated. Right. And so mm -hmm. alloplastic mm -hmm. replacement absolutely is the key. 
In the UK, often I'll see patients that haven't had a procedure or have had a single procedure, and they may benefit from intervention. But we know from loose studies that when you start, when you've opened a joint more than a couple of times before a joint replacement, the success rate of that joint replacement in terms of improving function and improving pain is significantly less than a patient that's had two or less previous procedures. Right. Yeah, I, I, I remember, if you remember a long time ago, there was a Scandinavian group uh, with Anders Honlund that they did uh, many, many uh, disectomies long time ago. I always remember uh, the great discussions during the Congresses that we, we wanted to maintain the joint and they wanted to remove the disc and they have a long, really long term, over 20 yeah. years or, or more of uh, these patients and they, they do quite well. So disectomy, of course, it has a role, it has a, an indications and probably in these cases, we can delay the final uh, temporary or joint replacement. So in this case, let's move to, to your favorite topic. You are expert in, in the joint replacement, mostly with uh, alloplastic de devices. Uh, I'm sorry, alloplastic um, uh, metal or some other uh, materials. And um, of course, we see that uh, during the last years, there have been like a boom in mostly in the apply, appliance of the new technologies and the planification for these cases. No? So everything is much better because we have, we can plan uh, precisely this kind of processes. And we have uh, stock processes that they are cheaper, but they are, you have to adapt the bone to the processes. And you have, of course, custom made um processes total joint processes that you can adapt the processes to the bond that you have so they are much more precise accurate and of course much more expensive so i would like to know your opinion about the indications of both processes uh, stock and custom made in these cases and which are the advantages of both and in the case for example of andrew that uh, he works in a public system that, of course, is not the same as the private way. You have to, to deal with many cases. You don't have custom-made processes for, for, for everyone. So how can you manage these kind of patients and indicate appropriately these both kind of processes, stock or custom-made? Right. Well, for us in the United States, the problem with, with the custom joint is getting them. You know, the Biomet custom joint's not available in the United States. It's not been approved, not because it wouldn't be approved. It's just that the, the, the company to date has not made the investment to get it approved for use here. So we basically have what used to be the, the uh, TMJ Concepts is now Striker uh, joint, which takes anywhere from four to six months to get a joint made, or we can use the stock Biomet joint. Now, one of the recent uh, additions to the Biomet joint, you can actually uh, digitally plan the stock joint now. And I ask myself, why didn't I think of that 10 years ago? Why did it take so long to realize you can digitally plan the stock joint? Which means now we take all the information and you can determine if the joint will fit. That's the first important step. 
what size joint to use, where your bone interferences are gonna be, where your nerve is, all of that stuff can be planned. And so I've actually done uh, more stock joints recently than custom uh, because they are cheaper. And with the digital planning, it takes a lot of that guesswork and fear out of the procedure. Uh, there's no question that custom joints are easier to use uh, than the stock joint. You, have, you don't have to make very many intra-op decisions with the custom joint. And there's no question that there are many, many cases where you have severe pathology, such as you're using a custom reconstruction in a patient that's had their jaw resected for cancer or uh, some other pathology where a stock joint's not an option. But uh, both joints, in my experience, I've used both custom and stock joints now for 20 years, and they both work really well. And uh, I'm quite pleased. And they've been a big addition. I think the addition of good alloplastic total joints to our field has been a significant contribution. Yeah, I agree. I think we we need to appreciate the pathology that we're treating. So this is the, an international meeting. We have people from all over the world. And, and I, I work in India on a regular basis. And recent studies looking at stock prosthesis fit in the US, your own study in, in uh, Florida and another study recently out shows in the US, around about 75 to 80% of patients can fit a stock prosthesis, which is great. And, and yes, that 3D planning, you can use cutting guides to guide you where you're going to put the prosthesis in and everything like that. In India, it's completely different. So you, you the majority of the pathology in India is ankylosis. Mm. And when they get ankylosis as a child, you get failure of growth of the joint. A study from Ajay Rochaudhry's unit in, in Delhi recently, only about 20% of patients actually fitted a stock prosthesis. And, and these guys are absolute geniuses at adjusting the patient's position using 3D planning, adjusting the plan to make a stock prosthesis fit because they can't afford a custom prosthesis. And that cost issue is something that we, we need to be very aware of. The other issue we need to be very aware of is 3D printing. And the, the problem with 3D printed prostheses is porosity. So you get more porosity in a 3D printed prosthesis. That generates two potential problems. Firstly, a risk of microfracture and subsequent fracture of the prosthesis. But secondly, a greater risk of biofilm formation getting into the microporous structure and not being able to got, be got rid of. The third issue we need to look at is related to cost. So there are now 25, 35, 45, however many prostheses being made across the world because the Biomet and Striker prostheses are expensive. They're $10,000, $15,000 a piece. We need to be very aware of what has failed in the past. So metal on metal has failed in the past. And therefore, the same substance on the same substance is going to fail due to wear debris. So I would suggest that things like peak on peak is going to fail because of wear debris. Stainless steel is going to fail. You've got huge issues with metal debris from stainless steel. Orthopedic surgeons abandoned it in the 70s. We shouldn't go back to things that have failed in the past. And, and the failure 
of the Christensen system moving from acrylic on metal to metal on metal is probably due to early metalware debris getting into and causing a foreign body reaction. So we've got two, maybe three or four different types of prostheses, which we have long-term studies on, which we know work. They all rely on cobalt, chrome, or titanium on ultra-high molecular polyethylene. We haven't yet at 25 years using the Biomet and the TMJ Concept striker prosthesis seen any evidence of wear debris when knee replacements made of the same things and hip replacements made of the same things start failing at 10 or 15 years because of wear debris. So we're lucky. But why put in prostheses that aren't tested, that we don't know what the long-term outcomes are, that potentially you're going to end up with another Kent prosthesis blowing up in everyone's face. And then across the board, the people who pay for the prosthesis saying, no prosthesis works. And so we, we, we need to be very aware that we should use prostheses which work. They should be properly tested. We shouldn't go back to the failings of the past, which the orthopedics of surgeons have seen. We should move forwards. We should continue to test properly before we put anything in our patients. Sorry, I'm preaching. <laughs> no, but well said. And we, we learned that the hard way in the United States with all of those alloplastic failures. That was, in my life, that was the darkest period of oral surgery in this country, maybe the world. Or yeah. Mostly the rest of the world didn't get caught up in that. Uh, but uh, that was a tremendous, uh, horrible time for us during that problem with the proplast Teflon and silicone to a lesser extent. Okay, so I think um, everything is quite clear or quite unclear. I'm not sure because temperament you are young is always an an area. So so many things have been uh, said um, wrong and mistake and has been believed. That is a sentence from my good friend Ed Ellis told about the temperament we are doing. So I think uh, it's really true, but we have to learn still a lot of things from our joint. We have to invest. We have to investigate. Also, the, the industry has to, to come uh, with us and to, to develop new methods and new things, not only based on on money and um, what what is the cost, but also the benefit for the patient. So um, I think we, we're going to end the podcast because we have been uh, taking uh, a, a nice nice uh, time for nearly 35 minutes. So in summary, I can say that uh, probably the origin of temporal maneuver joint uh, dysfunction and diseases are multifactorial, mostly based on, on macro trauma and hyperactivity in the joint and some biochemical changes. Of course, uh, when we take a look to the, um, the surgery that we can do and apply in our joint, arthrogenesis is the, the best one because it's a very good cost effective. It should be the first choice, probably with some doubts, if we can um, 
to put something inside the joint to help and to speed the recovery of the joint. There is nothing uh, still scientifically demonstrated, but we can use it. And then we can move to arthroscopy in case we have uh, we need a good diagnosis, uh, lip surgery, where we can take nice uh, views and what is going on inside the joint and how can we treat exactly the target that uh, we want to do uh, to, to take. Maybe the position of the disc is still controversial. We really don't know if it's essential for the good working of the of the of the joint. Then the next step should be open joint. Open joint probably has their own indications for those cases that we can delay the prosthesis. And as Andrew told, we need to give some good function without or with a low pain to some kind of joints. But probably we agree that this discopexy in open joint is it has no, no space right now as we can do the same thing uh, through arthroscopy. And finally, the temporomedular joint replacement with uh, prosthesis. Of course, it has a nice future. Um, um, probably the technology has helped us a lot for planification. Probably we have the, the very good custom made that we can apply in nearly 10, 15% of the cases but 80% uh, we can manage with the stock prosthesis. Probably we must encourage the, the industry to try to develop some better stock prosthesis to apply to some other uh, patients. And also um, take care with the 3D printing, printing as Andrew told, uh, prosthesis because they are not good tested and we can and with some really problems in these cases. So uh, let's see what is the future. Let's see what uh, new things will happen this next year. And uh, thank you very much for you both, uh, Frank Dolwig from United States and Andrew Southbottom from United Kingdom for being here today in the podcast. Thank you to the International Association for this uh, new way of um, uh, discussing about the topic um, and uh, I wish you the best to all of, of the assistants. Thank you all. Thank you again for joining us today. Visit us online at www.iaoms.org to become a member of our vibrant global community and to access a variety of education and timely resources. Stay up to date on IAOMS by following us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're here, so you're the first to know when new episodes are released. Until next time.